0: Well, thank you all so much for joining us. My name's Leslie Barnes, and I am with Alliance for Justice. We are headquartered in DC and wanted to take a moment uh, to introduce our panelists and um, let them tell you a little bit uh, about their organization. Uh, Rowana, would you uh, please introduce yourself?
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Rowana. I'm with Southerners on New Ground, which is a grassroots base building organization um, that works within the South um, to build power for queer and um, gender nonconforming folks, black and brown folks, poor and working class folks. We build that coalition to build a stronger South.
0: Thank you so much, Rowana. I'm so glad that you could join us. And Stephanie, would you mind introducing yourself?
2: Yeah. Hi, Um, I'm Stephanie Cho. I'm the Executive Director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta, and our mission is to protect and promote the civil and human rights of Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders in Georgia and in the greater Southeast through our policy advocacy work. Legal services, including removal defense, organizing and civic engagement, and when we need to impact litigation.
0: Thank you, Stephanie. You and Rowana have tough jobs, and we so appreciate partnering and collaborating with you. Um, Zach, would you mind introducing yourself?
3: Sure. My name is Zach Ford. I'm the Press Secretary at Alliance for Justice. Uh, we have two commissions and so I'll let Leslie talk about the one that she and our brilliant Boulder advocacy a- attorneys work on. A lot of my work though is focused on our justice related mission. Um, so as you can imagine uh, with the Supreme Court vacancy we are very busy. I'll also be talking a little bit today about my experiences as a journalist writing for the outlet Think Progress, uh, which no longer is around but was based at a C4 nonprofit and so Um, We'll have some other context to share there. I'll pass it back to Leslie.
2: Thank
0: you so much, Zach. And um, I work with Zach in our DC office at Alliance for Justice, and as he alluded to in our Boulder Advocacy Program. And in that program, we work with nonprofits and grant makers to help them understand and navigate the rules around lobbying, funding, and electoral activities. So how can they create systems change, Um, within their tax-exempt status. So we are a group of geeky tax and election law lawyers and evaluation professionals, and um, thanks to the wonderful um, uh, foundation funding and support that we get and donors, we're able to make our um, technical assistance hotline and resources available free to all nonprofits. And so we get a chance to work with Southerners on New Ground and Asian Americans Advancing Justice. And hopefully, um, that this will just be uh, the first of our conversations working with you all, too. And with that, we will get started. Um, I really appreciate Zach being here, because I know with the um, vacancy on the Supreme Court, you are being pulled in 20 different directions.
3: Um, Only 12, actually.
0: So today we're going to look at how nonprofits, both grantmakers and their grantees, can engage in advocacy that creates systems change, how grantmakers can support um, that work and lift up their grantees. We'll talk about navigating the rules a little bit and about where you can find resources for free. That help level the playing field for organizations that perhaps don't have specialized tax and election law lawyers. We'll talk about some tips that both Southerners on New Ground and Asian Americans Advancing Justice, and then Zach at Think Progress used in their advocacy work. And then Roe and Stephanie will share why each of their organizations created a 501c4. And so with that, I should say all four of us work. For both a 501c3 public charity and we have an affiliated 501c4 social welfare organization so uh, we will uh, they will share tips on why their organization started a affiliated 501c4 and then zach will share some tips um, some really cool tips that i just learned about this year for tracking and logging um, advocacy and electoral work So when we think about advocacy, we're talking about all of the activities that impact the world around us. So we're not just talking about lobbying and trying to influence legislation, but we're talking about all of the ways that we can create systems change. And wanted to ask our panelists why advocacy is important to them and their organization. And for us at Boulder Advocacy, we see how advocacy improves lives every day. And Rowana, I wondered if you could share with us how advocacy, why it's important for you all.
1: Advocacy is important for me and for Song because we truly believe that um, the world that we envision for the South includes people being able to bring their full selves um, to the table, whether it's, you know, going to work, um engaging with um the world around us like black and brown folks people of color and queer people have been oppressed by the system in a lot of ways and it's important that we are able to empower folks to to be able to speak up for themselves and bring their full selves to to every part of their lives
0: thank you i so appreciate that and you being here And for Stephanie, why is advocacy important um, for your organization?
2: I think there's still um, uh, not enough understanding of the immigrant South and how it's really growing and changing. And so it's really important um, for our organization to be out there and outspoken. Um, And also to combat any um myths around the Asian American, sort of silent, uh, docile, um, kind of um, stereotype that a lot of times um, is associated with the Asian American community. There are a lot of Asian Americans they are very diverse. It covers <laughs> huge areas. And so I think for us, it's um, to be really outspoken and to be really out there um, to show um, and give examples of um, what it means to be a true advocate for um, your families, for yourself, for the community.
0: I see Rowana nodding as well. Thank you so much. Um, how about Zach? Um, you've worked at a number of uh, two, at least two different nonprofits. What? Why was advocacy important for you?
3: Sure. Well, even before I started at nonprofits, I used to be a teacher and when you're trying to help someone learn something new, one of the best ways uh, to cement that is to give them an opportunity to interact with it, to um, write something with it, to do an activity with it or whatever, and so uh, as a journalist, and, and when I'm working with the press, um, I'm thinking about education, but I'm also thinking about how can folks uh, actualize what we're hoping that they learn and understand. And so, advocacy is the way to do that to take what you've learned uh, and apply it in some way in your own life and in your own community, um, or as a representative or as a citizen uh, of, of the whatever jurisdiction you're, you're working to make change in. So um, I really think that advocacy is that important step to help people not only learn, but do something with that knowledge.
0: I love that. Thank you. And I so appreciate someone asking a question. I was just gonna say um, to please use the Q&A box to insert questions. And we've got our first question for the panelists. So when we're talking about advocacy, um, they're asking if we could um, explain what our working definition for advocacy is, and I'd be happy to go first. Um, One type of advocacy is lobbying, trying to influence legislation, but there's so many other types of advocacy. There's corporate advocacy, maybe trying to change policies within your own business or other businesses. We saw Human Rights Campaign engage in corporate advocacy when they created the Equality Index and they rated corporations based upon their policies for LGBTQ employees and their family. Um, So there's corporate advocacy, there's regulatory advocacy where you try to influence regulations and rules. Um, How about Stephanie? Um, Can you maybe think of two or three other types of advocacy activities?
2: there's local um, advocacy like at your school board or um, doing something around getting rid of uh, uh, agreements with ICE and um, you know the Sheriff's Department like 287G agreements Um, so local advocacy is something that um, is very important in places where it's harder to make change on a statewide level I love it so working on public policy either at the executive branch
0: um, or, um, yeah, so executive um, types of advocacy. How about Zach? Um, when you all were at Think Progress, um, I you were a journalist there. I guess what's the advocacy we engage in at uh, the justice side? What what kind of advocacy are we engaged in there?
3: well in all of the above you know for me advocacy is taking the step from helping people understand the way things are to understanding what they can do to change them for the better and so you know i I think progress my focus was lgbtq issues so it's helping folks understand what does it mean to be gay bi lesbian trans queer um what are those people experiencing in their lives and what could folks do in their own lives uh to make their their communities more inclusive uh their workplaces more inclusive and things like that and so for me uh advocacy is anything that is taking that step forward to say things don't have to be uh the way they are they can be better
0: so educating educating the public the press policymakers legislators
3: well as yeah. i said earlier i do think it's, it's just that one step forward it's it's helping somebody feel that they can do something to create that change in their own lives, as opposed to just sort of feeling helpless, feeling like everything is beyond their control. As a democracy, we actually all have a part that we can play. So advocacy, I think, is really equipping folks uh, to move that forward.
0: Equi- I like that, equipping them, empowering. And I heard Rowana say that too. How about you, Rowana? Um, maybe a couple different types of advocacy that you all um, that you all are engaged
1: in or? That come to mind? Um, For us, uh, we think of like grassroots advocacy as like um, empowering folks to um, understand what they as citizens can can help do to bring change in their local communities. And um, that could look like uh, organizing a protest. It could look like um, being a part of uh, a working group that um, helps educate themselves and the public about um, about the the rules of of their local community. Um, so yeah, that's what it looks like a lot um, at Song taking the streets. I love it. I love it. The grassroots. The
0: know your rights. Um, and and so one of the reasons we wanted to pull together this panel was that there's one type of advocacy or there's a couple types of advocacy, both electoral and lobbying influencing legislation that have lots of rules around them, Um, limitations on funding, limitations on how much lobbying you can do if you're a 501C3, so we'll get to that. Um, But then all the other types of lobbying, there aren't nearly as many rules as long as a C3 keeps them nonpartisan, meaning they don't engage in them to support or oppose candidates, Um, And then C4s, we'll talk about kind of the special activities they can engage in. So, let's see. Um, Oh, we just did that. Why advocacy? Um, Just wanted to take a second to recognize the passing of Justice Ginsburg and the fact that one of my favorite quotes um, of hers was about that real change happens one step at a time. Um, And so... I'd like to think that that's why we're all here, is to, um, to kind of come together and, and talk about how do we create that change? You know, what are the steps we can take to create change within our, our communities? And with that, I, um, the first um, type of advocacy campaign we wanted to talk about was with Southerners on New Ground, and Rowana was going to walk us through um, a campaign that they ran called Free Them All, an abolition campaign. Can you talk to us, Rowana, about kind of what the goals of the abolition campaign were and what some of your victories and successes were? And then we'll talk about the activities in a moment.
1: Sure. Our freedom Mall campaign has kind of come out of um, the work that we started doing in 2017 to end pretrial detention and um, Cash bail within um, within the region, since we are a regional organization. Um, So this campaign is one of our regional campaigns. So it is currently live in Durham, Virginia, Atlanta and a few of our other chapters. Um, so in 2017, we started doing uh, Black Mama bailouts um, where we uh, pretty much fundraised to free Black mothers and caretakers from, from jail. Um, and that turned into the Free Them All campaign, which um, is our current iteration of that campaign. So the goals are to end money bail to, um, and to defend Black lives. And um, one of the interesting things about this campaign is that um, we did partner with um, the National Bailout Collective to kind of take it national. Since we're regional and we focus on um, our regional strategies, we needed to make an alliance with a national campaign in order to take it national. So the, National bailout collective um, helped us take it to um, a broader audience and um, that campaign looks a lot like um, doing rallies Um, in the time of COVID, a lot of uh, it it looks a little different but um, (laughs) But doing rallies and um, skill ups and trainings on what it's like to do direct action organizing work and um, and yeah, really um, help empower people to understand how they can take charge of, of, um, of, of being, a, being an advocate for themselves and for their community. That's really what this campaign is about and being an advocate for people who are currently incarcerated. I remember the first time I heard
0: about the Black Mamas
1: bailout action.
0: Um, was it done in conjunction with um, the Mother's Day Um, or is that a separate program bailing out mothers in time for mother's
1: day or was that, it's the same. That was, yes. So um, we generally would have um, a black mama's bailout in May um, for mother's day so that we could get as many mothers and caretakers um, out of jail uh, for mother's day. So uh, to cap off um, that campaign, we would, you know, Basically, have a, like throw them a little parties so that everybody, you know, kind of like a, a homecoming party. Um, but yeah, that's what the Black Mama's Day bailout was about, and it has turned into the Freedom all campaign. I love
0: it. You guys have done so much to educate people about pretrial detention, about cash bail, um, and there are a number of organizations I think that have sprung up around that, um, and we. Um, since the protests have began this summer, we've gotten so many calls about um, 501c3s raising money for bail, um, and there are some, some rules, some tax rules around, around that, um, but the National Bail Collective um, was one of the models that we studied to learn how it can be done um, within the rules, the IRS rules, um, so I'm so glad that you guys are partnering with them. Um, thank you so much. Um, and then at Asian Americans Advancing Justice in Atlanta, Stephanie and her group have um, just started a campaign, just launched, I think, in September, called Dear Georgia. And I wondered, Stephanie, if you could tell us kind of a little bit about the goals that you all hope to achieve with this campaign.
2: You're going to be able to hear a pop Patrol in the back. So sorry about that. Um, no problem. So. <laughs> So, um, for dear Georgia, it's time um, was something that we really do feel like it's actually time for um, the voter suppression, the white supremacy around, um, the history of voter suppression. It just it's time, like we need to stop, and it comes in these different forms. And one is just about access, like allowing people to have things in different languages. You know, in other places, um, because I know that this is nationally broadcast, you know, it's a surprise to people that um, ballots aren't in different languages. They're not offered in different languages. Um, And what we're simply asking is, we know that census is, those numbers are gonna change. We know already that they will have to look at the emerging immigrant populations that are largely limited English proficient here. In Georgia, it's 44%, which is a lot higher than the national average because we have newer immigrant populations here, and that is very, very diverse. And so what we're saying is, is we need to see more and more things in different languages translated on the Secretary of State's website so that organizations like ourselves and other organizations aren't doing that work because it's really the work of the state to do. Um, And it's providing more access, just more ballot boxes. And, uh, you know, Gwinnett County, which is like the largest, most diverse county in Georgia, there were eight drop boxes. That's not enough, (laughs) you know, especially in COVID times. And so we're saying access means language. Access also means more drop boxes so that people can have a safe and secure election um, this year and years to come. And so we don't see this as, just a right now, sort of pandemic, sort of situation. We see this as the future of voting. Is is that there has to be other ways that are easier and more accessible for all people um, to be able to just drop off their ballot, to be able to get that information in language so they can read it ahead of time, so they can be educated. That is so important. So, what
0: both what Stephanie and Rowana talked about were holding elected officials accountable. And there are so many ways for 501c3s to do that, um, through advocacy and um, community education. And it's all permissible for 501c3 public charities to do, and it is permissible for both private and community foundations to fund this type of work uh, directly. Wanted to point out, the Dear Georgia campaign that AA, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, they've created kind of a, a separate dedicated page because it is a coalition. Um, just like um, Song had a coalition of nonprofits coming together. Um, Stephanie's group too um, has a coalition. And on this website, folks can go and they can um, create like an online petition. Um, So I thought that was a really cool way to um, engage in kind of virtual advocacy this year. When you can't go door to door, it's not very feasible. Um, Zach, can you tell us when groups are engaged in advocacy, um, one of the uh, requirements is um, both of funders and of the IRS is to document the activities. So why is document so important?
3: Sure. So, you know, I think one of the reasons that a lot of nonprofits have apprehensions about embracing advocacy is they are concerned about the different legal requirements that impact uh, limitations on on how far they can go with it uh, and proportions of how much time they can dedicate to certain kinds of activities and things like that. And so what you really want to do is just find a way to equip yourself to measure uh, as you're going along. you're dedicating your resources so you can recognize am i doing enough uh to counter um how much lobbying i'm doing as a c3 can i am i doing enough of my primary purpose as a c4 to allow for the kind of political and electoral advocacy that i want to do um and if you start with the foundation of that kind of assessment for yourself you'll be much better placed um, to be able to step up and take the kinds of, of actions that you want to take. So um, as I'll be talking about in a minute, uh, and possibly on the next slide, um, <laughs> what you really want to do is set your your staff up for success. What you don't want is it's for it to be one person's job to figure out all of the different kinds of work that your organization is doing and what kind of uh, political classification it has uh, that you need to be concerned about. If you give all of your staff. Uh, a sort of basic knowledge about how to think about it and the tools to easily measure how much time and, and, and finance, uh, you know, uh, requirements they're putting into those kinds of activities, uh, it'll be much more seamless for you and you, you'll feel less dread like, oh no, we didn't do enough of this or we didn't do enough of that. Um, and, and there are some very easy ways to do that that don't make it overly burdensome uh, for your staff to do that. Um,
0: Yes. And, and we will, yes, I, I broke up the slides just a little bit. And sure. so we are going to get to those tips in just a moment. Um, I love how you all did it at Think Progress. And um, I've
3: got just, got just to address the other points on this slide. Yeah. As oh, happy. yes. No, no, no. Um,
0: yeah, um, I thought I loved how you explained it, but please, if you've um, got,
3: but you also like th- there are public perceptions too. And so uh, as somebody who's, often deals with those public perceptions, you know, you need to think about what are you tweeting? What are you uh, putting out in press statements? And and what are you putting up on websites and whatnot? Because uh, each one of those communications might be perceived different than what amount of time went into that work, uh, and so you want to sort of protect yourself on the public-facing front too, uh, to make sure that you know you're putting out messaging in proportion to the kind of work that you're 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 actually putting into those kinds of projects. Um, that'll help you uh, better prepare in, in the very rare case that the, there should be an audit. That uh, you know it's not just. Uh, a claim based on, on how you've reported your hours, but you can sort of demonstrate that with um, how your organization looks too. Uh, likewise, when you're receiving media requests uh, or, or people are coming at you, uh, it's easy to sort of like um, get defensive or, or think too much about um, where you're going to dabble. And so you can set yourself up to be safe um, by having done all of this, this prep work beforehand. So that uh, when people are accusing you of something, you can be like, eh, no, actually, if you, if you take a look at our Twitter stream, if you take a look at um, the, the kinds of presentations we've been doing, you can see uh, it's actually not what you're Accusing us of. And likewise, when you're talking to the press, you can make sure that you're channeling your statements in one direction or the other. You know, at Alliance for Justice, uh, when we get a certain press request that might dabble into talking about the election, we say, actually, we're going to respond as the Alliance for Justice action campaign so that we can kind of talk about these topics uh, safely. Um, even if we don't know where that conversation might go, or if it gets there, it sets us up. Um, and sometimes we, we do an interview that we don't think will be electoral, and at the end of it we've realized, hey, actually we went there, can you make sure you identify me as Alliance for Justice Action Campaign, just that's so that's yep, so
0: our C4, s- yeah.
3: Yes. Um, so again, all of this, all of this is easier if you plan it from the start and, and set yourself up for success.
0: I love the way you talked about, you know, protecting against a political attack because that is so much more realistic, I think, in the spheres we work in than sometimes any other type of audit or attack. Um,
3: Well, not only that, I think that um, in the age of social media, it's so easy to feel like an attack is bigger than it is Uh, when you're running social media accounts or you're uh, the the primary email contact, you might be getting inundated with some really nasty stuff. Uh, I've personally (laughs) experienced that. It's not a great feeling, but That doesn't mean that that's how everyone else in the world is perceiving it. Sometimes you kind of feel like you're in your just like own little hole, uh, uh, your own personal little hell, if you will, (laughs) Um, as I've described it to myself. But (laughs) you don't want to assume that that's how everyone else is perceiving, because if you start putting out a lot of defensive messages, you're actually fueling the fire, the fire. not actually um, responding to a legitimate critique from a legitimate perspective. It's one thing if there are dozens of articles being written about your organization, but it's another if you're just getting uh, some, some nasty tweets from trolls. So, you know, gird your loins a little bit uh, when, when that happens, because you don't want to sort of fall into that trap.
0: Or overreact right um, super important and and then the last reason too i can 't remember if you touched on was um, for funders, you know one, if you can document the advocacy and the successes that you have and the types of activity you engage in, like how many media um, mentions did you get, how many um, conversations did you have with legislators, how many trainings did you hold? Those types of evaluations and assessments are critical to be able to show to funders, our programs are effective, um, even if the end goal takes time, right? As Justice Ginsburg said, even if the, the end goal of um, abolishing pretrial detention across the region might take some time, but you get there by incremental successes. Sure. And that and it documentation. Helps
3: you, it helps you in both ways, right? If you have funders that are looking to see uh, just how effective you were, you, having that documentation is helpful. If you have funders that are really cautious about what kind of work they wanna be funding, being able to show this very specific non-lobbying, non-electoral, yes. uh, non-grassroots kind of work that's also well-documented uh, is helpful to make them happy as well. So you're protecting yourself on all fronts.
0: Absolutely, and then you can go after funding that, you know, is available from a variety of grant makers as well too. Thank exactly. you. Um, so we're just gonna go real quickly through navigating the rules because we usually um, do like an hour-long workshop just on the rules. We just wanted to remind folks that the 501c3 public charities that we all work for, they can lobby. They can try, when we're talking about lobbying for IRS purposes, they can try to influence legislation. They can call legislators directly to try to get legislation introduced and amended or repealed or or opposed, and they can engage in grassroots lobbying where they try to encourage the public to call their members of Congress or their city councilors or their state representatives and influence legislation. And private and community foundations, they can fund C3s that lobby Um, There are different sets of rules for the two types of foundations. Um, And then as Stephanie was talking about, private foundations can hold elected officials accountable. We have a number of resources about ways that you can praise and criticize elected officials. Now that we're in an election year, you have to be especially careful and take into account all the facts and circumstances around your praise or criticism. You don't want it to look like if that elected official is on the ballot that you're trying to Um, Lend support or opposition to the candidate. So you want to keep your praise or criticism on the elected official and their official activities. Um, And then we wanted to remind folks that we have a website at boulderadvocacy.org where you can access all these free fact sheets and resources as well as our technical assistance hotline to be connected to the attorneys around the country. so with that, I'm going to skip that slide, and we're going to jump over to Rose so she can tell us a little bit about their advocacy activities, like the specific activities that you guys have engaged in for the Free Them All campaign.
1: Yes, some of the, the things that we've done is um, direct action and guerrilla theater, which looks like literally taking the streets by storm. And um, <laughs> 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 and uh, letting elected officials and the public know what's going on uh, in terms of like um, the actual, what it's like for the for folks that are incarcerated during this time and particularly during the pandemic, but even when we're not in a pandemic, making sure that folks are aware of, of, of the material conditions um, of our people. And so guerrilla theater is often um, kind of performative and in that like you'll have signs, you'll have um, We we do a lot of art art builds. So like we may carry um, altars carry coffins carry um, with us things that that show and kind of emulate exactly what our people are feeling Um, But other things that we do that are also advocacy that are not direct action are, are our base building and our our membership activities, which involve a lot of um, building with each other and, and learning along the way. So a lot of political analysis, lo- looking into the numbers of what's going on in our communities. We do some court watching um, as a as a team. Um, so we'll have folks that will Sit in and and sit in on court cases and find out um, what the numbers look like for for people going in and out of the jails and we'll look at those numbers get educated about that get, get educated about what we can do about it. And story circles often look like us just sharing the realities of what it's like to be black and brown and queer in the south. And how that shows up for us individually, um, so that we can make sure that we're centering this around people, you know, like our humanity, and not just around this idea of, of um, changing the world for changing the world's sake. It's about, it's about us, it's about us building the world that we wanna see for ourselves. Um, So those are the types of things that we do and we make sure that we work in coalition with other organizations that um that we partner with like i mentioned the national bailout collective there's also like movement for black lives mehente we work in coalition with them in order to to build the south that we feel like we deserve and at times that does involve doing some lobbying for us it's usually grassroots in that we're Asking the public to to partner with us in 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 seeing legislation change so that um, we can change the material conditions of our the south. I love hearing the description of some
0: of these tactics. I had never heard of guerrilla theater before. I wonder if um, this picture I didn't mean to keep advancing the slide I was trying to look at one of the um, questions is this oh I didn't you your Instagram account I was just fast I was all over your Instagram account yesterday but there was one I think where folks had these shields and they were i think you were getting ready to go into the city council um mm-hmm. i wondered if that was an example of guerrilla um Absolutely. tactics yes yep. that, that would definitely
1: be guerrilla theater and it's it, it's planned mm-hmm. it's um it's definitely something that you know hap- feels like it happens organically and on the fly but all it you know our members really train and skill up in order to understand how to do guerrilla theater and direct action in a way that aligns with, um, with our organization's goals.
0: That's, that's fascinating. Thank
1: you. Um,
0: We had a question um, that I was typing as, or answering as well about community foundations, public foundations. They are treated just the same as our 501 C3s. So all of us sitting here, even though we work for public charities, they follow the same IRS rules that community foundations follow. Um, And so on our website, boulderadvocacy.org, anything that you see that applies to um, public charities applies to community foundations too. So community foundations can lobby And they can praise and criticize elected officials. Um, They can also make grants um, that support uh, the lobbying. There are a couple of different rules. Um, They apply to public charities too, so if if a public charity or community foundation makes a grant to another public charity or even a non C3 entity, the way you have to count the lobbying, sometimes double counted, it's legal, it's required. but it sometimes doesn't seem fair because then both the grantee and the grantor have to count and report the lobbying. But, um, but yeah, community foundations can do everything that Rowana and Stephanie are talking about too. And then private foundations can engage in some direct advocacy on their own. And we have resources for that. Private foundations just cannot lobby. So they have to stay nonpartisan like we all do in our C3 capacity. Um, but private foundations cannot um, direct try to influence legislation or engage in grassroots lobbying. And so that's one of the differences. Um, thank you so much, Ro, for explaining some of those um, techniques. I, um, I, I um, just, it makes me wish that I wasn't just always behind the scenes. Um, you guys are doing incredible, incredible work. Um, Stephanie, what are some of the techniques that Asian Americans Advancing Justice are engaged in for the Dear Georgia campaign?
2: Uh, For Dear Georgia, it's a heavy media campaign. Um, So that's uh, high-tech and, I guess, low-tech media outreach touches. So that includes ethnic press, um, ethnic media. It includes billboards um, in um, key areas um, like Gwinnett, Decab, Cobb. Clayton, um, Fulton, Um, and then um, it also includes um, digital ads as well. Um, And it's primarily, though, supposed to be a personal letter writing campaign. One of the things that we've noticed is is that um, we're trying, I guess, trying this out is that um, we notice that legislators really don't, they don't like being called out out on Twitter. They definitely also don't like a personal... (laughs) (laughs) letter if it feels kind of personal. They don't like that either. So, especially if it's coming from a whole bunch of different folks. So for us, we felt like we're going to try to go this route and see um, if this will invoke something, right? Um, And for it to be really personal about why it's so important to have access now. Um, Because I think a lot of times legislators are not hearing enough um, from the public right now. About how everything is impacting them. They'll just hear a couple of different stories, but I don't think that they're, they're really getting enough information because there isn't that direct connection um, right now. So, or maybe they're only getting it from one point of view, maybe the loudest point of view, and that's not always, you know, the majority. So for us, that is our, our main sort of piece. And then really for us is to get a small victory, um, incremental incremental. So like, if we're looking at Cobb or we're thinking at cab can Cobb and cab at least get um, uh, the ballots translated or at least the directions on how to, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm still on the call, um, on how to apply, right? Um, if that could be translated into Spanish, like Gwinnett, it doesn't cost extra money, really, because it's already the materials already translated. So those are the things that we're looking at is small wins from the counties, Um, you know, Georgia has like, what is it about most counties in Like, you know, definitely in the south. And so one of the problems with the voter suppression issue is each county does stuff really, really differently and it makes it really difficult to hold folks accountable, and so that's the other issue that we're we're running up against is, is if we can at least target a couple counties that might move, that is our, you know, sort of goal.
0: How do you pick the counties that you work in?
2: We pick counties that um, have high density populations of Asian Americans and immigrant populations. Ah, that.
0: Um, that that makes sense because that's where your resources are, and that's where the community is that you serve.
2: Go um, where places too. Like if you're looking at um, other states too, um, we've looked at what thresholds they used to, you know, have things in different languages where it is, and it's not just looking at the population; it's also looking at the limited English proficiency of that said population. So you might have a smaller population in a in a particular precinct that has a really high limited English proficiency.
0: Um, such important work. And as you said, 501c3s, pr- both even private foundations and their, their 501c3s also, they're a different type. Um, these organizations, nonprofits, um, they can provide these in-language services um, but they're supplementing government services. These are services that government should be providing. The government is charged with conducting the election and making the election accessible for the people, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah, and um, we shouldn't be um, dependent upon which community has the most Nonprofits or nonprofits with resources, yeah, that just.
2: I mean, in the meantime, we've already sued, um, you know, in twenty eighteen, just for you to be able to have the interpreter of your choice in a local election, um, here in Georgia, you know, and so. Was that successful? That was that... so. Now you can um, have the interpreter of your choice in a local and also federal election, which seems like a no, you know, seems like a no brainer, but it is this. Piece where immigrant communities really have to stand up and say like, we just need things in different languages. It seems really simple if you're thinking about it in terms of anybody when you're thinking about accessibility. But a lot of times people don't think about something really simple as the simple solution. And so our sort of point is, is that it's simple, it's safe, it's safer, it's more secure and it actually educates the population more because they have that information already translated in different languages. Right now, we translate information, complete ballots, and publish them in the ethnic papers because the state doesn't do
1: that.
0: And when you're talking about people's rights, right? Like, um, so it's not just the ballot, as you said, it's the whole process. Like, what are your rights as a voter? What if you're challenged? Do you have the right to an absentee ballot? How do you request it? Those types of resources need to be in language
2: too. Yeah, that's... Yeah. um, yeah. And so those things are also in language and we have a hotline as well. And this is a very, Ro will definitely understand this uh, example of a Georgia, here's some policy stuff, right? So, poll workers have contacted us right the new ones that all these groups are recruiting right they're younger they understand that there's immigrant populations they're contacting us to ask us if there is a hotline a free hotline that they can call to translate information or who should they who should they call to do that right oh they're wanting to translate because
0: they're bilingual or trilingual
2: they're they but they're they want the right information too so they're like how do i tell a voter like where to go these are the new workers, right? These aren't right. the people that are in charge of making the policy or changing the policy. They, these are the new people that the all poll workers, states, yeah, are, are, you know, because they see the change and they see the, how necessary it is. And the fact that Georgia lawmakers, Georgia decision makers, you know, the governor is not seeing this as, as a simple solution is kind of the problem where it's, it's also the same situation you know, with like defunding the police and other things where it's like, it's very clear what people want, Yeah, <laughs> but the change is not, is not happening at that level. Like, it's very, very clear.
0: So some of this work, the in-language work, is it, do the election officials have the discretion to do it themselves, or is some of it lobbying that would require legislative initiatives and solutions?
2: the um, Board of Elections in DeKalb, for example, if yeah. they wanted to translate how to do okay. something, like this is how you fill out an absentee ballot, they could totally do that. Okay, you know their own discretion. So
0: that, not lobbying folks. So trying to get the DeKalb County election official um, to translate ballots that they have the discretion
2: to do, not lobbying, you can use yeah. restricted funding. Yeah. Not sorry, not ballots, the information. The information, could, got it. They could they could translate how to do everything,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but not the ballot itself. The ballot itself has to be the Secretary of State. Got it. Um and then if you guys
0: wanted like a statewide legislative requirement, that's gonna take lobbying, that's gonna take unrestricted funding, but it can still still be done, just different it, types of funding streams that you've gotta work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and track and report. Um, Thank you so much. Um, I wanted to, I know we've got a couple questions too. I wanted to get a chance. um, So Zach's got, oh, real quickly, I will, you all will have access to these slides. So please capture and download these slides that are on ComNet's um, uh, platform. Here are some of um, what I think are maybe the highlights of our resources around both election year activity and um, lobbying. They're free to download. Won't spend much time. So, Zach, can you share some of the tips that you all used at Think Progress for logging some of these activities that made it a little easier?
3: Sure. So uh, Think Progress was a, an editorially independent news site that lived in a 501c4 the center for public or center for american progress action fund um, which is the c4 affiliate of the center for american progress cap And so uh, as a C4 project, we had a little bit more freedom in terms of the kinds of things that we could write. Um, And as a new site, we weren't always doing calls to action, which meant that it was actually kind of easy uh, to make sure that the the majority of the content we were putting out was educational based uh, for that primary purpose ratio. But one of the things that was really important for our whole staff to, to know is what difference what differences uh, in content affect these different kinds of classifications uh, for how we should log our time. And so uh, at least once a year, uh, and certainly whenever new employees join the team, uh, our legal team at the organization would sit down with us and take us through a fairly detailed training specifically about what does it mean to be partisan electoral? What does it mean to be grassroots? What does it mean to be lobbying? So that as we're writing these posts, uh, reporting the news and, and reporting on elections, reporting on ballot initiatives and things like that, we could correctly identify that so that we could keep our own records. Uh, and what was really brilliant was, uh, our site was built on the platform WordPress, which I think a lot of websites uh, and, and news sites are, are built on these days. And our custom backend, uh, the part where we're inputting the content, had an actual little drop-down box For every single post that we wrote. And before we could publish it, it was actually a a thing we had to check before it let us click the publish button, where we Mm -hmm. had to select, was it partisan electoral? Was it uh, grassroots lobbying? Uh, And we also built in all of our specific grants that had to do with certain kinds of issue areas and certain kinds of content. So this was a great way to to track, could we spend down on our immigration funding? Could we spend down on our guns funding? Because if your if your post was based on that, um, that was a great use uh, of that grant funding. And we all had to include with that how many hours uh, we spent on on writing that post, whether that was reporting it, researching, even just kind of brainstorming it, um, just so that we had a really accurate uh, classification for all of that content. And I think on the next slide, Leslie, um, my 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 former colleague was able yes. to share with me. Um, the, the full packet that they used to give us uh, as part of these trainings. He asked not, that i not share the whole thing, but that he said it was okay if I shared a couple of excerpts. So uh, what I wanted to show all of you was um, just some of the ways that you can help some of your employees um, kind of follow a little rubric. Um, in our case, there was a hierarchy, right? If it was partisan electoral, if it mentioned anything about the election, anything about an upcoming uh, candidate's race, um, any, any, any one of those sorts of things, it automatically got put in there. We were really sort of conservative about it. Um, but this is another one of the categories that you see on the screen here, grassroots lobbying. And so our rubric said, okay, if it's not part of the electoral, but, um, oops, I think you. Oh, sorry. i on to one, yep. the next one. Um, if, it, if it calls upon the public to contact Congress, um, if it calls upon members to sign a petition, um, and, and sometimes even if we just talked about a petition in a particularly enc- encouraging way, um, then we would document this as a grassroots lobbying story um, to make sure that it's, it's sort of properly finalized. Uh, now, I think you can go to the next slide, Leslie. Um, there we go. And so this is how uh, they talk to us about educational funding. And you can kind of see how um, this also lays out the full rubric. If it's not part of the electoral, if it's not direct lobbying, if it's not grassroots lobbying, then it's education. Uh, and so most of our content was education. Uh, and you can see how our, our, our legal team really sort of helped us recognize like um, this includes anything that's part of your progressive effort to create a more open, just and inclusive society, elevate the quality of public discourse on politics and policy by fact checking, debunking, revealing as vacuous or inconsistent and argument, etc, etc. And here where they also build in, reminder, we have these other grants too. So if it's not one of those other three things, but it can be uh, billed to one of these grants, uh, then make sure you check that box so that we're spending down that grant as we're able. Uh, And now I know that like being a news site is a very specific kind of function but why I wanted to share all of these ideas is one uh, it was really fun for me to come over to Alliance for Justice where uh, Leslie and the Boulder advocacy team was doing all of this work about C3 and C4s and kind of already have a working knowledge of it because my own organization before prepared me for that and equipped me with that as part of my responsibilities, uh, even though I wasn't a Boulder Advocacy lawyer answering (laughs) technical assistance questions. Um, And it's been very easy to sort of jump in and and share that. But I, I also want you to think about, are there other systems that your team uses for projects? Things like Salesforce, things like Trello, where you might be able to sort of adapt this idea and build into your own uh, systems management plan a way to sort of connect the hours you're working on specific projects to the kinds of, of political classification that you need um, to really document how you're spending all your, your money and your hours. So I, I hope that that's just a really helpful uh, entry point for thinking about it. But also don't, just don't be afraid to talk to your staff about these things. It, it can feel kind of wonky when you're getting into tax law, but it's actually very approachable and there are some basic ways that you can equip them so that your whole team is working together um, to recognize these limits, but also recognize these opportunities.
0: Please thank your colleague um, for sharing some of these slides. I love these. It's giving me all sorts of ideas, Zach, <laughs> for, for our office and for some new resources. Um, we have some sample timesheets at boulderadvocacy.org for C3s and C4s and for groups where your staff splits their time between C3s and C4s. Um, Which leads me to Roe and Stephanie as to why their organization, if I can, um, why their organizations started 501c4 groups. And I may just kick it off by saying, 501c4s are still nonprofits, still tax exempt. They can still get grants from both private and community foundations. They have to follow certain rules, but they can lobby an unlimited amount they still have to have unrestricted funding, and now they can engage, C4s can engage in partisan activity. They can support and oppose candidates as long as it's not their primary purpose. So their primary purpose still has to be to engage in charitable educational work, but their secondary purpose can be the harder hitting um, support and opposition for candidates. So. Um, Which one of you, Ro, would you like to go first and tell us why you all created your 501c4?
1: Sure. Um, So Southerners on New Ground now has has an affiliate organization called Song Power, and um, that is our 501c4 arm. And uh, we decided to um, have a, a 501c4 so that we could expand our narrative work. And really be able to name names because at our organization, um, our members in our community, uh, we act very boldly, you know, we speak very boldly and uh, we realize that within the 501c3 structure, you know, there are plenty of things that you can't exactly say, even though you might want to. (laughs) <laughs> and having a 501 board allowed us to um, name names, call people out and, um, and, and make it really clear what we're asking folks um, to advocate for and who, who has the power to make those changes. And to try to change leadership, right? If, if someone is opposing,
0: you, you, your advocacy can only go so far. And so if they're in opposition you could try to get somebody new elected, right? Is that, or hopefully, you know, with, with additional persuasion. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe encourage them to work with you. Thank you so much. Um, Stephanie, why, um, can you tell us a little bit, I know I wanna um, mention we've just got two or three more minutes, um, but can you tell us why Asian Americans Advancing Justice started their C4?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably similar reasons. It's, um, there just isn't a lot of power in the Asian American space um, in Georgia. And so, um, and when I had first moved here, I think seven years ago, there was only one legislator who was Asian American and he was Republican. And so now um, we're going into 2021 and there'll be two um, Asian American men who uh, are queer and one, uh, Asian-American woman, like that's totally, <laughs> I don't know what the percentage is of that, <laughs> but um, it's it's a really a <laughs> yeah, <laughs> big. So I think there's some changes happening, but I think, you know, uh, it wasn't really moving like anything that we were trying to do around, you know, ice out of Gwinnett or any of those kinds of campaigns we were working on, we just weren't really getting anywhere. Um, there was a lot of old guard, um, and so they were not interested in... Um, um, they didn't represent our communities, the changing demographics, and they also didn't care to, to listen to anything that we really had to say because they didn't think that we had enough, you know, sort of like power or voice. So I think that that is changing. Um, and so we started the C4. We started in 2018. Um, um, We were Asians for Abrams was our first campaign out of it Um, and so um, now in 2020 we have a couple other campaigns we have that Asian Moms Against Trump um, campaign coming out Um, and so I think we're we're moving towards that we also decided to because of the 2020 election we decided to do a federal pack just so that we could um, sort of cover ourselves Um, and I think that. That was the other thing we learned. um, And I'm sure Song is similar in the same way as it actually allowed us to do more and protect us actually more having these different entities.
0: Yes. so So the C4 that Stephanie and Roe are talking about can do independent expenditures in federal races, but they cannot contribute directly to federal candidates. But the PAC that Stephanie mentioned can contribute directly to um, candidates. And then the funding has to be um, different different forms. Do both of you, can I ask real quickly, um, do you have members, paid members to your 501 C4s? Do you know? Like paid membership?
2: Oh, no, we don't. Okay.
0: And Roe, do you know, do you have paid members in your C4?
1: Our, our C4 started this year in 2020, um, Got it. so as of right now, that's, I don't believe that's something that we have. Got it.
0: There's a little tip and a little trick if 501C4s have members that pay more than a nominal um, annual membership, So, um, and we can talk about what that means. There is some cool coordination that you can do with federal candidates. Limited, but, but you can coordinate with some federal candidates. Um, and it doesn't involve an expenditure of money. So might be something. Um, we encourage 501c4s to consider having
1: some members. Um, Absolutely. We, yeah. We definitely have um, members who um, help us at our 501c4. Um, but as for like... Awesome having their membership under this 501c4 that's sure so yeah understand no i applaud you
0: guys for starting the 501c4s that is amazing thank you all so much everyone um just wanted to end um with a reminder um that congressman john lewis from georgia um left us with is that our vote is sacred it's one of the most um non-violent forms um of of change that we can can bring about. And so I just wanted to thank Zach and Ro and Stephanie for being here and and the attendees as well. Um, We've kind of been answering questions as we go. I've also been typing some answers to questions, but if folks would like to reach me, I know there were a couple questions um, that were a little more specific around election year activity, feel free to email me at this address. And with that, I think we will say goodbye to everyone. Um, And thank you again, Ro and Stephanie, very much, and Zach. (laughs)